I was out of the country at the time. I swear <laughs> to God, I was out of the country. I've got witnesses. It was Kerry Thornley and uh, what that, that, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. I was all the, I was in Asia. I swear I've got witnesses. You're a patsy, like just a patsy. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that was a hell of a story. We'll probably never mention that one publicly again. No, exactly, yeah. If only I was recording. <laughs> oh, really? Hello there and welcome to episode 86 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. I've cast the demon Mark Satir into the pits of hell this week and uh, replaced him with an equally devilish uh, co-host, Mr Ulysses Black. It's good to have you back on the show. It's very good to be here. (laughs) Thanks Uh, for having me. How have things been? Busy, busy. Lots of things going on. Lots of things in the world of rituals. Yep. And lots of, uh, you have a new book out, I believe? Yeah, there's a new book, The Voyage of Ulysses Black, which explains sort of my own convoluted HGA working. That's available at Midian Books. Excellent, excellent. So who are we talking about, or who are we talking with, I should say, today? We're going to be chatting to Alan Greenfield, who's uh, a fixture of the uh, occult world going back many many decades but also seems to know basically everyone who's uh, ever been knocking around yeah true and not just in the occult world as well he's he, he uh, his tentacles spread out into the uh, <laughs> far and wide and deep and and today we, we, he has a new book on the horizon um which we no, no one seems to know the title of including him um i think it is the secret of the Black Lodge, no, the secrets of the real Black Lodge revealed. I think that's the name of the book, possibly, but it's out on July the thirty-first. So we thought we were originally going to interview Alan about another book that came out not so long ago called The Grail Within, um, uh, which is all about sex magic. But instead, we sort of found, I found the the topic of the Black Lodge particularly interesting, and uh, so we sort of dwelled in that that region of the... Uh... Yeah, it, the Black Lodge is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because it kind of reaches into all sorts of aspects, not just of occultism, but um, things like uh, David Lynch. We're both mm-hmm. big fans of his work, and uh, so then these sort of modern fictional kind of things, but it, it also has a history that goes back possibly thousands of years Mm, yeah it's interesting stuff and mr greenfield has some interesting stuff to say about it so let's get over to that right now hello alan greenfield thank you so much for coming back on the show it's always a pleasure um how have you been we haven't uh, spoken to you for a while uh, just fine for the last, well, it's been over a year, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, I think so. Time flies when you're not having fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I've been going through a creative period, although struggling with my new book, plug, 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 <laughs> uh, non-plug, non-plug. Uh, it, it's taken longer to write than anything else that I've done. It's not going to be that thick a book. I don't write long books because... Uh, in the spirit of Liberal, keep it short and simple because the times we live in, 
calls for short and simple. Otherwise, people wander off. You don't get a lot of Dickens and Bronte and, and these troubled times where Gen Z doesn't even know how to write uh, longhand at all. They're not taught it anymore. Mm. <sighs> Always a bit the different. Decline and Fall of Western Civ, Volume <laughs> 24. As uh, Robert Anton Wilson called it, the conspiracy of the stupid. Yeah, or idiocracy, which yeah. I'm afraid is in the cards. Yeah. And I don't mean the tarot cards. Yeah, if only they're in the cards. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, you've got a new book coming out soon, and it's the third of the um, Secret Cipher books, I believe. Um, and we've, we're still not sure what the, it's actually called. <laughs> Um. <laughs> it's got the words Black Lodge in the title. No other book that I have written. And part of the point is for the last oh, almost 100 years now, the term Black Lodge, which at one time tripped lightly from the tongues of magicians back in the Golden Dawn uh, AA era, all you know, the real one, not the imitations that are around now, uh, the many, many claimants. Um, uh, it was a very common thing to discuss, just as the secret chiefs were commonly discussed. That you still will hear occasionally, um, along with, you know, uh, other terms for the same thing, ascended masters or in the East, bodhisattvas. But Black Lodge has become an an Orwellian unthing. So I decided time to put it back and display and talk about it all the way up to present times. Uh, the one thing we don't do uh, in discussions with my publisher is uh, name uh, any living person because I, I really don't want to get into some sort of David Icke reptilian type crap because that only leads back to my house and all the other Jews getting rounded up and taking a shower, which I don't intend to uh, be responsible for provoking. Yeah, fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, it's something say, like the, the secrets of the real Black Lodge revealed, revealed, revealed. It in, doesn't echo on the cover of the book. but In red. <laughs> in, in red, yes. Yeah. That I'm insisting on. <laughs> Can you can you start by just telling us in your in your from your perspective what the Black Lodge actually is, whether it's an abstract That's concept or whether you consider it an actual body of initiates or or individuals acting under an umbrella? How how do you actually see it? Well, if you uh, you first need to understand the concept of bodhisattva or ascended masters or secret chiefs, which are initiates who have ascended to the third order. That is to say, that have become non-corporeal, but continue to exist uh, in relationship to the human race as a benevolent force to help guide the rest of us one step at a time uh, beyond our uh, petty uh, little lives on a day-to-day -day basis into higher realms. Now, some people think that the Black Lodge, uh, to the extent it's thought about at all, uh, is sort of a group of 
Deros, uh, to use Shaver's term, just degenerate beings that are uh, uh, sort of don't have a handle on anything, in which case I wouldn't worry too much about them. But they also are incorporeal, for the most part, beings who have advanced uh, in terms of the tree of life just below the great abyss. And for reasons, you have to have been a high-level member of the OTO for 20 years to really fully understand this, but or, or some comparable body, um, they reach a point at which they could take the plunge or the uh, walk across the great abyss on the path of Gimel, or they can see to it that they're uh, – relatively advanced state doesn't get uh, preempted by anyone who's coming up behind them. Sort of the opposite of the, the AA curriculum where you advance by advancing your student and uh, then advance to the next level and on and on. They do the opposite. They try to keep the rest of the human race pretty ignorant. And I would say at the moment they're doing quite well at what they do. Um, they do have human agents and uh, whether there is a Black Lodge, well, there's certainly no building that's labeled the Black Lodge. You know, it's not, not that coherent, but I think that they operate in much the same way as the secret chiefs because these beings are, for all intents and purposes, immortals. But their purposes are such that they uh, either directly or indirectly uh, create havoc and uh, cause great difficulties on earth or at least anticipate them. And uh, just the opposite of what the attempt by the secret chiefs is to elevate uh, those who are willing to be uh, moved up the ladder to the um, to Buddhahood or call it what you want. I mean, the terms vary from around the world. There's uh, in Jewish mysticism, it's the Lamed Vavniks, which means the 35. The numbers probably are symbolic. Uh, because I don't think that there is a, a fixed number or upper number that uh, can be in this state of being. Their human allies are people in the criminal underground uh, and even perhaps uh, some heads of state uh, and people in positions of influence. They would love to see a global thermonuclear war because that would solve their problems for them. And that's the ideal because they can influence individual people. They've even been known to murder people uh, who perhaps were getting along the path too far. Um, my first publisher who gave me a really big break and I moved from being a writer for fanzines to being a published author, uh, Ron Bonds at Illuminate Press. Well, he was poisoned died. Illuminate Press died with him. Several of his other writers, uh, uh, Jim Keith notably, and uh, uh, my 
friend, Carrie Thornley, all died relatively young and under quite mysterious circumstances. You will hear varying accounts, but generally speaking, if people are uh, croaking under 50, under, you know, difficult circumstances, it probably calls for a second look. So, and I've had my own encounter with the, um, not the Black Lodge directly, but uh, an agent of the Black Lodge that showed up at Euless Lodge number 10 OTO Incorporated uh, and who looked, he was a dead ringer for Charles Manson. <laughs> so right away, he's going around and this will date it if you keep track of these things. He was going around pitching the harmonic convergence will change everything. And he goes around and it happened that the uh, lodge mistress from New Orleans was visiting on that particular occasion. And I thought, well, there were a lot of people there, you know, basically to see her. Uh, and also it was a party and uh you would have to understand Euless Lodge to understand if it was a party, a lot of people were there who didn't necessarily much care about spiritual advancement. They cared about uh, the drugs and who they could get laid with. But uh, like this concert. guy, <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, we were known as the Stripper Lodge, not to our faces, but I heard that from, from the Lodge Master in, in Los Angeles. But um and so be it, you know, because at that time I was married to a stripper and we people kept bringing, you know, people in. In fact, a stripper brought me into Euless Lodge. So that's, you know, a long ago story when I was young and naive and uh, part of uh, the uh, wrong side of the occult, I think. Uh, not necessarily all the people involved, but certainly the... Uh, the authoritarian hierarchy. However, I'm told that I talk about that too much. So I won't, I won't talk about that because people say, yeah, yeah, we heard that before. You're not going to be on our show anymore, Greenfield, because you, you talk about Bill Breeze by name. I'm sorry, I'm not worthy. I'm not. Okay. So. Was I saying something? Yes, I probably was. I usually am. Uh, Black Lodge turning up at um, your... Okay, so this this guy, I just watched him. I didn't approach him. He didn't approach me. But I had sized him up as uh, not necessarily an agent of the Black Lodge, but certainly because of certain uh, events that would be too long to go into in whatever I have, an hour and a half or thereabouts, judging by your previous program, which I <laughs> looked at the timing on. Um <laughs> with uh, Brother Staley, uh, if I may call him brother. Uh, I'm not sure that that's okay with him. It's okay with me. <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he wouldn't um, mind. Uh, anybody that's in the uh, Kenneth Grant School of Magic is okay by me. I think Grant's only real flaw was the same flaw that Crowley had. He, they were lousy organizers and tended to throw out their best people. It was just... Uh, Probably, probably their analyst would know better than I what it was that made that happen. But uh, yeah, especially but Crowley. In, Crowley in used to throw out being, all these guys, didn't he? I mean, if anyone sort of started to get too high in Crowley's uh, system, he'd just get rid of them, wouldn't he? 
uh, even even his magical son. I even saw something today that was bad mouthing Frederick Hodd, uh, giving the same tired old story of his mental breakdown. Well, his mental breakdown, uh, knowing some of the people that are in the organized Crowleyana groups, I would not be one to complain because he's not alone in having had a history of uh, psychic disturbances. We'll, we'll just call <laughs> it that and let it be. So, um, but yeah, he uh, basically uh, alienated virtually everybody. Um, the only immunity was towards the end of his life uh, I think he was looking for a successor, and he did uh, make vague promises to maybe half a dozen people. It's interesting. He made uh, Gerald Gardner, who he chartered an OTO body in London for. I owned the charter for, for many years, but back in, the, in my uh, – OTO days, D-A-Z-E, I donated it uh, as part of my uh, seventh degree uh, offering to that particular manifestation of bullshit. <laughs> Irish breakfast, it's a hearty tea. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'm careful about that because I, I did a program on UFO disclosure, which I think is a, a true crock of shite. You know, <laughs> it really, really, really is. But um, uh, the, the the person who invited me on was is a person that I'm very friendly with. But I knew that I would get lots of lots of negative comments, and one of them was I I don't want my voice to get hoarse if I'm on for you know a long time. So I brew some tea and I you know take an occasional sip. So the comments on that program were, "He's what does he put in there? It doesn't look <laughs> like tea to me. He's incoherent. Clearly he's lost in his drugs or his, I don't do drugs and I don't drink. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so but I do curse. So fuck them all. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, intercourse them all. So you, you, you think this guy that turned up at the lodge was a black lodge agent? I'm, I'm, well, he was an agent of what happened. Thanks for steering me back to my original story. You I've get old, you begin to wonder, <laughs> well, about my children. Oh, who can live from children? Go live from your children. They don't call. Actually, they do uh, to tell me what's wrong with me. But that's. Oh, shut up. Uh, <laughs> I had a device that went off just a minute ago. And Welcome, command, please. Be quiet. <laughs> it thinks I'm talking to it. Ah, uh, um, yeah, it's one of those. Like, talking like, clock. You know? Ah, right, like an Alexa or something. Oh. So, yeah, uh, earlier than that and oh. not connected to uh, the, the... ether. The ether. <laughs> well, the ether I could take, but the, uh, <laughs> the, the few controlling persons in... Uh, 
the internet universe, I would really rather not have them monitoring everything I say. It's bad enough that I'm pretty sure the guys in St. Petersburg here, every program that I'm on, which, you know, that's okay. <laughs> they hear everybody. So <laughs> I watch this guy and when he goes to leave, he has a hippie van, looks like Charles Manson, who was already in prison at the time. Uh, and he had been uh, spewing this stuff about the harmonic convergence. And I've been through an endless number of into the world scenarios. So I'm very, very cynical about that. You know, there was the first one was in the early 1960s. It was astrological and, you know, it came and it went. And usually there's no comment afterwards. Well, the harmonic convergence was uh, popular among uh, new agey folks. So I said nothing, but when he went out to his car filled with his hippie-ish friends, now this is the 1980s, a little bit late for that particular, you know, type of configuration um, outside of, you know, the Rainbow Family Festivals or whatever, or the Grateful Dead concerts of which I've been to four, but never seen them perform because the stuff going on outside is far more interesting than any <laughs> band ever was. So um, as he's getting in his van, I said, you know, speaking of the harmonic convergence, and I pulled a date out of my uh, voluminous uh, volume of dates, which just uh, 10 years later than whatever the date was then in mid 1980s. And I said, that's the day that you need to watch out for because that's your day of reckoning. And I could see that it was, oh, wait, like I had gotten through to him and he didn't catch the, the irony in what I was saying. So I thought, ha ha ha, I got one up. Come a few months later, the local OTO Lodge, for reasons that are complicated, was um, we were collectively invited to perform a Gnostic Mass at a neo-pagan gathering. Well, there is a certain amount of friction between uh, the Crowley community and the Wiccan community. So we were glad to go and show that, you know, we uh, we went to one of their events and they had a large following. I don't know if they still do in this area. Uh, and uh, they invited us to come to what was called the Spiral Gathering somewhere in the heart of Georgia, USA, not the country on the border of Ukraine and Russia and other places to the east um, called Hard Labor Creek State Park. I kid you not. So we weren't there for hard labor, but about, I guess, 10 people from our lodge went down there and a lot of weird stuff occurred during this event. But I noticed that that guy was there and I thought, well, maybe he's doing the same thing here. I'll just stay out of his way because I got through to him once, but I doubt if I could do it again. So there was an, a dining hall uh, in the manner of uh, 
neo-pagan gatherings. And at, uh, I think this went on for four or five days, at one of the uh, luncheon occasions, which by the way, the, the there was a group of grant people from upstate New York that were there and they refused to uh, eat with the uh, McMurtry slash Breeze OTO people, which I thought was rather petty, but um, because our then lodge master offered, you know, to sit down with them and to do, <laughs> do what thy will shall be the whole of all. What is thy will? It is my will to eat and to drink. To what end? That my body may be satisfied thereby. To what end? That I may accomplish the great work. Love is a law, love under will. I think I left something out, but fuck it. <laughs> Fall well. to. Um, and I believe that was, you know, a Crowley original, too much like Grace before meals for my taste, but uh, because Grace didn't show up, you know, it's mm -hmm. she's just not, not an OTO type. But anyway, this guy stands up and he announces, I'm holding a raffle and if everyone here will put a dollar in, to, we, will, we will give you a card and we will draw one person and where will the money go? Uh, the money will go to clean up Mount Arabia. And I thought, this is really interesting because Mount Arabia is a really, really obscure place. Even people that live next to it don't know that it's there. It's, there are uh, reasons for that, but it's my personal power spot. I have empowered over a hundred people there free for nothing uh, during the Great Arabia working uh, many years after that. And I had been doing the uh, 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 Castaneda system with some of my closest friends years before that. So I thought, well, this is some kind of setup, I think, not to be paranoid, but of all the places he could pick and all the things that it could be the raffle. I said, well, if I'm not being paranoid, I will win this uh, drawing. And there were probably a hundred entries, but sure enough, I won it. The prize was breakfast in bed delivered by a naked slave. <laughs> so I thought, oh gosh, because I was there with my soon to be ex-wife and other people from the lodge, we had a cabin and I thought, I don't really need a naked slave to be showing up and I don't eat breakfast. I hate breakfast. I hate eggs. I'm Jewish, so I don't eat ham. It's just, but this girl shows up. It was interestingly, it was one of the people from the, um, the upstate New York ex-grant group, they had been kicked out. I think it was Bill Siebert's uh, group. It was uh, a sex magic group. And uh, so the naked girl comes in and I say, uh, I don't eat breakfast. Give it to my uh, cabin mates. Uh, so it was given to them and I went back to sleep and I thought, well, I don't know what this was about, but maybe it was just to embarrass me. That's okay. But the, the, the guy, I mean, it's too many coincidences at that point. And on the last day of this gathering, the spiral gathering, um, 
I was on my way again to the dining hall. I didn't spend all my time at the dining hall, but this, it's where things happen. And between me and the door is the guy. And I thought, well, I'll just walk past him. I mean, I'd, you know, if he says something, I'll say, uh, yeah, remember the date, you know, or, or whatever, give him, you know, but basically stay out of his way. And he holds out his hand. And because, among other things, I am a Southern gentleman, I reflexively reach out and shake his hand. And the minute, the second I did it, I thought, I'm dead. Because he had one of those Borgia-type rings with a, a needle on the inside of it. And he pressed it against my hand, but not so hard as to penetrate flesh. And he looked at me with this knowing look. And that's the last I saw of him. I mean, I was waiting to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, should I just go about my business and I'll either keel over or not, you know, but uh, uh, nothing happened. And I thought, well, what was the purpose here? And the best I could come up with was uh, people that I work with that talk about the Black Lodge, despite what the, the pressure from uh, the powers that be in the occult circles um, are dying like flies. Why not me? And the only message I could figure that it, that it carried was, we can get you anytime we want to. So I was duly chastened. And that's, that's the entirety of the story. I never saw him again. And that is really, to my knowledge, my only encounter with somebody who was, in my very firm opinion, an agent of the Black Lodge. Again, uh, many, many uh, coincidings there. And since I don't believe in coincidences, we'll just call them synchronicities and a warning. First, what are the, the first kind of recorded instances of the Black Lodge? Because I, I found one yesterday. I was doing some research into this. And have you, have you ever heard of the Sabians before? They're kind of pre-Islamic Arabian group. Um the Fabians? The Sabians. Say S. Not Fabians. Sabians. Oh, the Sabians. Yes, yeah. they were a pre-Islamic group that uh, Muhammad disliked yeah. and that were, that were uh, eventually absorbed into the Arabian goo. No, I thought you said Fabians, which is a socialist society from <laughs> – yeah. uh, 19th century uh, Britain that was very successful in being in that sort of political lineage myself. I was, I thought their approach was good because they were sneaky. <laughs> they didn't say like the current crop, oh, let's have a social, they were just, you know, literati. And actually there was overlap with the Golden Dawn there, but Okay, the Sabians. Yes, I've heard of them. And I think we only see them through the eyes of uh, the Islamic community, who clearly were their enemies and and the victors. And the victors do tend to write the history. So yeah. I, would not, more... I would not say they were the Black Lodge, but it, it goes back that far for sure, no, I mean, maybe what, further. What I meant was, um, I, I can't, it's bugging me, I can't remember the name of the book now, but there was... Um... 
a book written. There's been a lot more academic study recently on the Sabians that they've uncovered a lot more information, sort of independently, which is which is useful. But uh, one of the beliefs was that they believed in a place called the Black Lodge, which is really interesting. So the Sabians ah. uh, believed in it, and that's that's going back a long way. <laughs> so it's kind of that's, yeah, a, that's yes, a, it is, and I think that probably was Lynch's type of sourcing rather than uh, directly from the occult community. Because, mm. But I don't eliminate that as a possibility. I'd love to ask the man because um, he is a. Uh, transcendental meditator and that community tends somewhat on the periphery to overlap with people that have other esoteric interests uh, but where he gets his ideas i think may basically come out of his own head you know he's yeah, just I think a very I think Mark Frost. surreal creative person I think they're. Uh, I like his version of Dune much better, actually. <laughs> yeah, his co-writer Mark Frost, I think, brought in a lot of that stuff. He was um, interested right. in You're all correct. the yeah, interested in conspiracy theories and the occult, and um, I think Lynch just sort of interpreted it. And uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's my it's my favorite interpretation of the Black Lodge, personally. <laughs> but um, so one thing that they talk about actually interesting that we brought up. Um, Lynch is there's a scene in Twin Peaks where you see Wyndham Earl for the first time who's um you know Agent Cooper's FBI foil and um you see him on a on a TV screen kind of ranting about the Black Lodge but one of the things he um one of the groups he mentions is a thing called the Dugpa and uh the Dugpa are sort of in, interlinked with the Black Lodge aren't they I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the Dugpa well Look, there are a lot of organizations that arguably serve the Black Lodge. I mean, uh, uh, Richard Shaver talked a great deal about uh, uh, the, well, he didn't think that the earth was hollow, but he did think it had caverns. I think he was talking about portals and thinking they were caverns, but uh, the Dero and the Tiro, who were degenerate humans who had access to machines from advanced civilizations, but they needed uh, slaves and they were also cannibalistic. So they offer made offers to the criminal underground around the world, which is, you know, there's the mafia here and in, and in uh, Sicily and the rest of Italy, frankly, and then there's the Russian mob and there, uh, there's the, the Tongs in China. Uh, there are a lot of them and they're more than willing to work for anybody that is willing to pay them. So uh, they have other interests, but I think they often work for the Black Lodge. Um, you're talking about the Indian uh, the East Indian group, Dugpa. The um, there's going to be. I know Blavatsky spoke about them, didn't she? Uh, as they were um, a group of black sorcerers, or is that right? Yeah, I think um, that's why. Yeah, I, yeah, well, all things Indian go back to Blavatsky. <laughs> I often think there would be no. Uh, they would still be waving the Union Jack were it not for the Theosophical Society, because they uh, they took a. Uh, after they got kicked out of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, Colonel Olcott and Madame Blavatsky uh, renounced uh, 
mediumship and made their way to India. And that's the story of the Theosophical Society, although technically it was founded in New York um, during one of her visits uh, hither. And uh, ooh, I can't say hither about New York. Uh, <laughs> up there, up in, up in there as... Uh, but uh, that's where it was founded. They were kicked out of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, uh, I think because of their mediumship or maybe because Bavatsky was, I don't know, uh, very, very opinionated, even in her early days. So they, they became quite hostile to the uh, HB of L, which eventually wound up about 50 miles from where I sit right now. Don't ask for that in metric because I have no <laughs> idea and yeah. find it ghastly. But uh, we still use miles. Don't worry. <laughs> well, we have here, gone I mean, it's it's still the law. You know, it's you go to Canada, it's uh, metric. You come here, it's uh, uh, more or less imperial units, and never has changed. Although scientific stuff has, you know, that's where it's appropriate. Mm. It's just. What do you replace a foot or a smidgen with? Uh, it's not a scientific thing, but try cooking with a liter of, you know, it's just bad. So it's still a pint, you know. <laughs> from what I hear from people that come over here to visit me from your neck of the woods, there's still, I said, you, do you have like in Orwell a liter of beer? Say, no, it's still a pint, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still a pint. <laughs> still a pint of milk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, one of the uh, um, uh, one of the sources um, for Doug Poe is a guy called Henry T. Lorenzi. Have you heard of him before? I think he was a... Yeah, no, that, that's a new one to me. But, yeah, uh, he's a, a theosophist, I believe. But um, have you heard of him? Of course. Oh, no. no, it's... Uh, but yeah, no, so that's another good source for people if they want to learn about Dugpa he's he's uh there's a whole section in one of his books which is I'll stick the links in the show notes for this one but um it's a it's an interesting read if you're interested in in dark sorcery oh, yeah. <laughs> and that kind of thing but one of the things you always I often see people especially kind of cons more conspiratorial podcasts and um uh yeah conspiracy podcasts basically always seem to mix up the black lodge and the secret chiefs um, I was wondering, could you, yeah. yeah, yeah, they, they do, yeah. and that's that's why I, I try to be very careful in what is said in this book and what I say about the Black Lodge. I don't want people to, you know, go suspecting their neighbors of being uh, the nefarious Black Lodge. In fact, one of the few things that I do mention that has some currency is I'm pretty sure. QAnon works directly for the Black Lodge. I mean, they're funded by the Black Lodge, not by uh, what they claim, which is, you know, it's a member of the Trump family or whatever. And what they're doing is spewing stuff that people buy into. It's like the disclosure movement in, in ufology. It's meant to raise expectations and then crash them leaving behind disillusioned and or angry people. Um, there are a bunch of, of historical cults in the Indian subcontinent that uh, 
show all the signs of being uh, Black Lodge. I mean, the Thuggee, uh, which uh, was uh, supposedly suppressed during the Raj, one of its better moments, um, they killed people, but in a particular way that has the mark of no pun intended, the mark of the Black Lodge, because they would strangle people, but they weren't allowed to spill any blood. And their contact was the goddess Kali, uh, as in Kalikata, the city, you know. Um, but my suspicion is that just as Ashtar, Ashtaroth, uh, is a common... Uh, New Age contact with uh, supposedly extraterrestrial beings. I think what what the people that communicate with that uh, being, if they, and I talk about this in, uh, what was it, in Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, um, Ashtar is clearly Ashtaroth, a uh, uh, demonic being, that goes back to ancient, uh, at least to uh, Assyria and Babylon, um, probably to Sumer, although whether under that name or not. But I mean, there's uh, that variations of that name are there. And interestingly enough, the uh, the medieval demonology uh, rubric of uh, of that particular demon uh, is that. It migrated to America in the 1600s, and it wasn't really a fallen angel. It was really a being of light, uh, which is uh, probably something, if it goes under that name, you probably should take anything that it pro professes to say uh, with a good deal of caution. And uh, I use the... Uh, uh, the ciphers of all to kind of minimally decode that in, uh, well, that's in the complete secret cipher of the euphonauts, which is about to become the incomplete secret <laughs> cipher of the euphonauts. But uh, uh, after the book comes out as a separate thing, I'm going to try to get my publisher to incorporate that in to being the new revised edition of the really complete secret cipher of the euphonauts. That will not be the name, but... Uh, Even more complete secret cipher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my, my guidance there comes from a book that was very, very influential uh, fiction book by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, 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 um, um, which was originally published in, uh, I guess it was Astounding or one of the science fiction pulp magazines in the 1950s in the so-called Harold Shea stories, because it was about uh, interpenetrating universes, only these were literary universes that became real through a certain incantation which I liked a lot. And the first one I read was The Incomplete Enchanter. And they eventually collected most or all of these stories in a book, and they called it The Complete Enchanter. So, you know, there's there's com incomplete, there's complete, and then there's complete. Like I have a book uh, that I think is in print called The uh, Complete Rite of Memphis, but I spelled that 
as in the the complete the the complete it's it's the sun it's the the electromagnetic thing that is scrambling what remains of my brains 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 give me brains send more cops uh, what was i saying <laughs> ask me something else <laughs> okay. well, you were just telling us about um your take on astaroth and its journey to um oh, I, yeah, uh, yeah, america I'm and i guess i'm i'm wondering if you're tying that in with the black lodge as uh, an entity of the black lodge or Go on, off you oh go. yeah, I, I think no question about it that that comes directly from the Black Lodge, and why is it all uh, uh, peace and enlightenment? Well, it's because it's to diffuse uh, people that um, might otherwise take a real interest in the day-to-day -day world. It also traces back to uh, the dark days of the 1930s when there were uh, uh, copycat uh, uh, Nazi-like organizations in just about every country in the Western world, not the least of which was the United States of America. Um, and the manifestation of that, other than that of people of uh, German heritage who joined, many did not, joined the uh, German-American Bund, which <laughs> was headquartered in New York, which is probably the worst city for a Nazi organization to try to organize in. <laughs> but there was also a thing uh, founded by William Dudley Pelly uh, called the Silver Shirts, which... I know a good deal about, in part because uh, my father and the local rabbi in my hometown infiltrated this organization. They were basically uh, like the uh, the brown shirts in America. They were, well, Pelly got away with that until about 1940, and a lot of this will be in the upcoming book, the name of which is... Help, 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 help. Secrets of the Black Lodge, the real Black Lodge revealed, I believe. is the Yes, yes, that sounds close. <laughs> Something, like, <laughs> Something that. like that. Available from all of the usual outlets, you know, Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, Amazon UK is where, you know, if you have people over there, you can get it right away. And uh, they're pretty good about royalties and stuff. Not yeah. that I care. <laughs> Are you holding but, back from um, releasing the complete secrets of the Black Lodge? Yeah. Is that going to be the follow-up? <laughs> well, I don't think I know the complete secrets of the Black Lodge no, because... Uh, if you did, they'd have to kill you. Well, if they were going to kill me, I suspect they already would have. My best defense, other than the several katanas I have laying around here... <laughs> is one of them is in an umbrella stand by my front door. Don't tell them. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I have three. Mm. It's, it's, uh, they were a, such a bargain, and they're authentic, and they come from Xinhua, which I think is Japanese for dragon. The thing is, they're all made in China now. Mm. Everything is made in China. So, you know, mm. nuclear devices made in China. Uh, <laughs> 
the so, Ford Motor Company, a Chinese corporation. Half that, the movies I see, the the titles have you know. Well, yeah. we all know about that. You know? Do you have any more on the machinations of Astaroth in America? You started telling us about the um, the the American proto-Nazi kind okay. of thing, but, but about, yeah. the, about well, the, the movements of this this entity. Or... Okay, so you have um, Pelly in the 1930s, and of course, uh, the USA came into the war in 1941, and he was sent to jail because he was considered a subversive, and rightly so. He had an epiphany in prison. Many people have epiphanies in prison. John the Baptist, uh, Hitler, uh, all kinds of people, good people and not so good people. And he began doing channeling, new age sounding channeling. And when he got out at the end of the war, he had people working for him who would be familiar names to people who are as I am involved in ufology, like George Hunt Williamson, maybe George Adamski. Which is, uh, these are people that uh, carried on that tradition and folded into something called the I Am movement, which still exists. And the I Am movement is centered on the notion of uh, Mount Shasta being uh, hollow, sort of like the Venusberg in Germany. Uh, and inside it is the, uh, the ancient Lemurians, the survivors of the sinking of Lemuria. And there are scads of you know, UFO sightings there, Bigfoot sightings, which I think are uh, the same thing under a different, uh, with more hair, basically. Uh, so, um, and the, the groups that pump this, some of them are you know, perfectly legitimate, although a lot of them are uh, sort of artsy-fartsy, new-agey, sweetness and light groups. Um, some of them are, you know, per perfectly decent researchers who maybe don't know this history. But basically what Pelly started has spawned many trans-channeling movements, which in turn seem to be channeling Ashtar, uh, uh, promulgating things like the, uh, the so-called Vril women, which to the best of my knowledge is something that was invented by a neo-Nazi group in Germany in the 1970s. Prior to that, you can't, it's like, uh, well, I don't want to get in trouble with Wiccans, but I, uh, I used to say, uh, find me a copy of the Book of Shadows that predates Ye Book of Ye Art Magical, which was found in after Gerald Gardner passed on, uh, in the back of a sofa uh, in his witch's mill on the Isle of Man, and uh, which eventually I attempted to buy from... Uh, Ripley's, believe it or not, who <laughs> bought it from his uh, from uh, his niece. By the way, he was also involved in the OTO. Anyway, uh, Ye Book of Ye Art, Magical, which I was able to read through with 
my then wife, number two, <laughs> wife number two. And behind door number three, no, we don't talk about wife number three. God, that's, to, to name is to invoke and no thanks, <laughs> kiddo. Um, so anyway, I was saying, hey, this is straight out of OTO ritual. Hey, this is straight out of the Golden Dawn. Hey, it clearly was that. So my offer was, if you can produce a copy of the Book of Shadows that predates Gerald Gardner's ebook of the Art Magical, which the earliest it could possibly be was sometime in the early 1940s. I mean, I had that from Doreen Valente, who was, you know, a key player in early Wicca. Then I'll say Local that you know there is well, yeah. a legitimate heritage. She lived, she lived that, here in Brighton. Um, <laughs> in fact, my other co-host Mark used to uh, do his laundry at the same time as Dor Doreen Valiente. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you I go. mean, she uh, she was very helpful to me in doing research on that, and uh, I published a couple of articles on it, which also had a good deal of humor in it, as most of what I do does. And I thought I was going to get some really, really negative reaction from Wiccan groups. Instead, it was widely praised in the Wiccan community because I said, you know, a legitimate form of spirituality doesn't necessarily date to antiquity. It's either valid or not. If it's ancient and not valid, it's not worth your trouble. If it's contemporary and is moving to you and meaningful to you, it's perfectly valid. And what I'm saying is Wicca is a product of the mind of Gerald Gardner, plus his sources, which were readily identifiable as part of the occult revival in the late Victorian times at the furthest back. So, and Book of Shadows is, you know, World War II vintage at the oldest. And uh, Doreen told me that uh, she suggested there were three versions of the Book of Shadows. And she suggested uh, to Gerald, she being high priestess, he being high priest of, I guess, the original Gardnerian coven, um, certain changes to be made so that it was more attractive to women, which I think Gardner was very down with. I mean, one of the things that Ripley tried to sell me were these uh, albums of cheesecake 1940s and 50s photos that Gardner had collected, no doubt under a little light in a <laughs> in a, a, a darkened room and pasted in this album. And I thought, no, no, no. I said to the guy that was trying to sell me that, well, we have Alistair Crowley's sword. Alistair Crowley had lots of swords. And that one looks like it comes from uh, the import shop. So no, no, no. <laughs> I tried, I, he said, well, we can't sell the Book of Shadows for less than $12,000. I had bid $6,000, which is why I'm a poor man today. That was the sort of thing <laughs> that I did. And they said, no, because that's the crown jewel of the collection. I think it was eventually bought, maybe the whole collection. Well, not, not the whole collection, because some of it is still in dusty corners in of the uh, Ripley's universe, probably the Blackpool operation still has, if you want to see whatever is left of the Gardner collection. They decided that it was not family oriented during the great Satan scare of the late 1980s, which struck me 
when they were explaining that to me as really, really funny, considering what's in the Ripley collection. You know, here's a human skull that's been hollowed out for a candle. Okay, that's that's okay for the family. <laughs> but <laughs> apparently, uh, witchcraft stuff is not. So the shaver stuff, that's interesting. You talk about it. The other day I was watching, um, have you ever seen the Pope Runyon Lemuria film? That he made yes i have yeah, yes he, i have he has got the greatest not voice. a great film but the no. information is useful that's yeah. that's the story of Pope Grunion, i think yeah uh useful information but not necessarily done with panache and oh, he's got know. the best voice though he's got the best voice i've ever heard <laughs> of Pope Runyon. The best you've ever heard? Yeah, it's amazing. The key of Solomon. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I do love have you met Pope Runyon? Or? No, I have not. Yeah. He's probably the only contemporary person that I haven't met or had any direct contact with. But of course I know who he is <laughs> because he's one of the big names. There are a few people from the previous generation I wished I had met and uh, um, that, uh, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. I pleaded with the uh, uh, U.S. Grandmaster, the OTO, to interview Grant. I said, look, uh, we, it was then, we have our differences with Grant. But he's one of the very few people who knew Aleister Crowley personally that's still alive. And while he is alive, get somebody, you know, Jake Strayton Kent, who passed on just recently, or, you know, someone who can get an interview with him on his background and have that on record. Because once he's gone, he's gone. And old Dave nodded. He always nodded and nothing happened. And of course, uh, I, I don't know of any uh, recording of grants. No. Well, we're looking into that at the moment. And the um, only one that seems to exist is a obscure radio interview that um, no one can find. He did one interview that we know of. Um, yeah. But he would have probably, uh, probably someone who was mutually amicable to the various claimants to the OTO. Um, you have more of those in in Britain than you have over here because people are so polarized here. We're near civil war levels, but uh, uh, I think it could have been done, but it wasn't even tried to the best of my knowledge. Um, and uh, it would have been better had uh, Grant been had Grant sought the kind of recognition that the OTO, the corporate OTO has. Um, but apparently he wasn't interested in that and that's fine. He did associate with Bertio and Bertio is still living. He's in his late eighties, but uh, uh, I consider him of those people that I know the best most adept magus of the 20th and now 21st century. And I don't say that idly. I know a lot of people that uh, uh, are 
or claim to be highly initiated, and he's by far the most, I mean, I am but dust under his feet. So. <laughs> Did, uh, has Bertrand ever, um, sorry, Bertio, rather, ever co- uh, commented on the Black Lodge in any way? Or I think he thinks the OTO is the Black Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> And it it might become that. I think that an organized body of manifestation that dabbles deeply into the occult, and I, I, maybe the word dabble is too, too light, uh, who delves deeply into the occult, but has a, an authoritarian basis, is... Uh, well, like I said, the first time I saw the guy that uh, that was a Black Lodge person was at an OTO Lodge. My, you know, the one that I belonged to and eventually became the Lodge Master of and eventually uh, past Master of. I mean, you know, I think I was the first that used the Crowley past Master ritual, so... They can't take it back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm interested in this Lemuria connection to the Black Lodge. Um, could you go into that a little bit more? Because you sort of touched on it earlier with Shaver. And um, I, I get the impression that that's kind of also partially what might have influenced Lynch's or you know Mark Frost and David Lynch's take on it as well. But there does seem to be a connection there. <laughs> I don't know how much of this is metaphor and how much of it is materially real, but I'm not sure that anything is totally materially real. I think that we may be uh, uh, accepting things that are easily accessible to our uh, minimal five senses as being real and everything else is irreal or unreal or beyond real. And that just uh, where... Uh, quantum physics and quantum biology uh, are today. That just isn't the case. It's all sort of nebulous and we just, it's, I don't mean to tell you this, but there's Godzilla is hanging out right behind you. Where is it? <laughs> Did you know he's a metaphor for nuclear war? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Mm. A lot of people don't know that because it's very, very clear in the Japanese version of the original movie. But I guess the the Western version, they had to bring in Perry Mason, not Perry Mason, but the actor that played Perry Mason <laughs> in a few scenes in order to relate to Western sensibilities. And that kind of mutes the original theme. But uh, still, anyway... Back to Lemuria, <laughs> of course, that was uh, um, one of the place names that Richard Shaver uh, talked about in his most famous and first uh, appearance in Amazing Stories. I remember Lemuria and whether that was the continent or whether that uh, that sank uh, allegedly. Actually, there's more evidence for that now. Uh, my friends, the, the Newkirks, who did the Hellier series, uh, recently were uh, pointing out that uh, apparently where Lemuria was uh, originally 
supposed to be between India and Madagascar, or yeah, between India and Madagascar, they have found evidence of a, a pre-existing continent there. And it, it may well be that the limers of Madagascar, who were named for the supposedly lost continent, actually was a lost continent, which is, you know, part of South Indian uh, mythology anyway. And I use mythology uh, in the, uh, the um, sort of Jungian sense that it may have a, it may be as real as anything else. It just uh, makes for good storytelling. Like, I don't think the Trojan War was exactly the way it came down through, you know, the ancient Greeks who were a lot later, but I think that there was probably a Trojan War. The archeological evidence is pretty good. Probably several Trojan Wars between Ilias, thus the Iliad, and, uh, and the city of Troy in Asia Minor. And going back a lot before that, apparently there have been civilizations in what is now Turkey and uh, was part of the Ottoman Empire uh, going back 10, 12, 14,000 years ago, which is a grist for the mill of those people who think there was a previous civilization. I don't know about that, but I do know they keep pushing the timeline further back. Anyway, back to Lemuria a second time. <laughs> volume volume two. Okay. The, the best Lemuria. <laughs> place I know of to, to look into that is not necessarily Mount Shasta, where supposedly survivors uh, in one version came from. Of course, I do credit the notion that there was a worldwide maritime civilization in very, very early prehistoric times. Prehistoric only because we don't have a written account of it, but that uh, uh, is probably the best explanation for certain phenomena that recur all over the world. Certain types of uh, stories, pyramids, uh, uh, legends of a lost continent being the founding place. You know, the Aztecs took their name, uh, their origin story from a place called Aslan, which something, and, and that they sailed to uh, to the valley of the uh, Mexico, the Mexico. And uh, some people think that was Atlantis. Of course, I don't think there is a sunken continent in the middle of the Atlantic, but there's evidence of uh, extended coastlines during, let's say, uh, during the last ice age. So who knows? But in specific about Lemuria, I think the best version to look at would be the Tibetan version, which is, uh, this is one of their versions, okay? But it's the one that I tend to subscribe to. That there is an underground city called Shambhala, from which the notion of Shangri-La comes from, which is a city of light, which is sort of the equivalent of the uh, 
the the Pure Land Buddhist paradise, which has a, a logic of its own, which is we can attain nirvana in these troubled times, whatever times it is, but we can attain the Pure Land because bodhisattvas and Buddhas go before us to you know prepare the way. It's a little um, in the Tibetan version of that. It is a city either in a remote place in Tibet or below Tibet, which is more likely. But interestingly enough, uh, Tibetan Buddhism has a certain amount of uh, schizophrenia built into it because it supplanted but didn't replace the local Bon religion. So Bon is a somewhat darker religion than Buddhism, and there's a lot of uh, in Vajrayana, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, that is darker than in the uh, Mahayana, you know, the larger Buddhist world. And uh, they say that there is also a city called Akarta that is below ground in Tibet, in a remote region of Tibet. And even today, there are still very remote regions of Tibet. I don't think people really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, and and stories that are, were originally written in Pali or Sanskrit, by the time they get to moi or thou or anyone in the West, are going to be corrupted. So yeah, the names may be interchangeable. I'm just giving the version as it the story came to me, and the story is Agartha was the Black Lodge nest of vipers. And Shambhala was the essentially the secret chiefs. And that remained true for, I don't know, a thousand years or more after, I don't know, whatever the meaning is of the sunken continent of Lemuria. Uh, another group of, I guess, some of them went to California, some of them went to Tibet, you know. Had to swim either way, a lot of swimming involved there. But, you know, these were super beings. So they climbed the highest mountain they could find and probably and probably dug the deepest hole they could find. Some think it's because uh, the younger Dryas was initiated by a, well, there are two versions of that, a comet hitting the earth and causing abrupt changes in the ecology of the earth or something we may be looking at right now. Certainly the Black Lodge is interested in it. The sun getting very temperamental, sort of like Betelgeuse is doing right now. Uh, Betelgeuse may blow up in our lifetimes. Uh, you younger folks, very likely it'll be in your lifetime. Um, and uh, our son is doing very peculiar things. And I've found that a lot of people who are on my suspect list of the 
of the Black Lodge are fixated on uh, black sun solar cults, including uh, some very murderous cults, notably in France and Canada, but uh, every, everywhere, and maybe even involving some peripheral people uh, in or around the OTO in the 1940s. It doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, these are people that quit the OTO uh, at that time or became part of that uh, uh, the Black Lodge of Santa Cruz, which wasn't the Black Lodge, but it's disowned by the corporate OTO, although the head of it was a, you know, Crowley certified ninth degree, I believe. They just, you know, it's the one that Charlie Manson, the real Charlie Manson, not the guy I <laughs> got poisoned by, or uh, let's say got warned by. Um Visited, but then that's a rip-roaring story, isn't it? Have you read the um, the PDF that circulates around of the Black Lodge of Santa Fe? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. fantastic. It's uh, like an Enochian adventure, isn't it? It's it's great. Yeah, it it is, and I think that the fact, other than the Swiss OTO, which doesn't stem from Crowley, it stemmed. I don't know if it's still around, but it was still around when the. Uh, emergency powers were invoked by Grady McMurtry. Uh, that's in quotes for people listening on radio or podcasts or whatever. There are quotes there, <laughs> emergency powers. The uh, Swiss OTO was certainly still around and had been continuous and had been chartered not by Crowley, but by uh, Theodore Royce. So they were, they were still in business and doing uh, a slightly sanitized version of the Gnostic Mass as late as uh, the end of the 1990s, maybe even into this century. So, Am I right in thinking that uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner was the 10th degree of the Swiss OTO? Uh, no, it was, he was in Switzerland, but I think that he was... Uh, there was some overlap. Yes, you're right. You're right. He was not the person that I'm thinking of because the anthroposophists do not trace their lineage to the OTO. They trace it to, uh, I don't know, to Steiner and his ideas, which definitely were very different from the OTO's ideas. I mean, he he was sort of uh, uh, Rosy Cross, uh, a Christian Nouveau type and I don't know of any version of the OTO that would be fairly called Christian, although there are, heaven knows, there are Christian Thelemites. Mm. Not many, but they exist. I know because uh, back in my initiator days, I uh, argued with the future U.S. Grandmaster who didn't want to uh, induct into the sacred night of the east and west degree a guy who called himself a christian thelemite and i said look either we have a big tent or we're going to always be a small organ so to king dave's credit he did uh, induct this guy but it was you know there were people that objected including the only jewish nazi i've ever known the late jim wasserman <laughs> yeah yeah that's an the slave shall serve and shall serve me well. Yeah, Jim, you fucker. <laughs> the um, 
one thing is there any mention of the fraternitas attorney in your book Shh, i'm not giving away everything in the book but yes if you go to your um personal um I want to call it a page. I don't know what to call it. On Skype, I uploaded one of the images from the Fraternity of Saturn to you, but there will be much more, much, much more. Oh, way beyond that book. <laughs> much, much more. Isn't that the book by Stephen Flowers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's with the... Uh, Temple of Set, uh, the, the 200 people. I was wife number four was at one time a priestess of Temple of Set. I talked her away from that. <laughs> uh, technically, I'm still married to her, so <clears throat> we won't go there at all. Uh, it's because Georgia being, you know, deep, deep south. There's no separation law in Georgia, and I think we're both done with marriage. So we, no reason to get divorced, but on the other hand, there's no, there's no separation. So she lives up with the, the Swedes in uh, Minnesota, the home of most of the people from Sweden, more than there are in Sweden, I think. Um, uh, so uh, she's not a Swede. She is a Mayflower descendant, though. <laughs> um, so, as she pointed out to me fairly frequently, <laughs> so, if she's listening, I I don't bear you any ill will. Keep doing what you're doing. What you're doing now is great. Well, um, so are you are you saving fraternitas to any stuff for uh, for readers of the book rather than listeners of the show in this case, or? I will. My <laughs> lips are more or less sealed. If you want to know a little bit about it, then you can read Stephen Flower's book, uh, which you can hold up again if you want to. But I'd rather you hold up my stuff. Yeah, I mean, he. Uh, <laughs> now that's a book. That's a book that cuts through all the crap and gets right down to the sex. <laughs> the secret of magic is taking the force of sexuality, the inherent force, life force in human beings, and doing what is done in all ceremonial magic, which is channeling it. Oh, I don't mean to do that to you. <laughs> channeling it into a specific purpose, which among others is the creation of the so-called bud will, which essentially is a um, tulpa. I don't know why I fall back on these Eastern terms, but they seem to fit probably a little bit better than the terms like Budwill, which is a little bit silly. Like I've always had a problem with the term Bigfoot because, you know, uh, hairy uh, anthropoid type being, uh, there probably is a better name than to talk about its shoe size. But then I come from a family of shoemakers, so, you know, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Why do you think? Because um, we talk about this a lot. I'd be interested in your take on this. But why? And this is certainly something you've encountered. I know because we've spoken about it before. But 
Why do you feel that occult communities are so, especially OTO and Golden Dawn, etc., why are they so scared of the sort of more supernatural or paranormal elements of what happens when you practice magic or you know why why do they why do they fear it so much part of it is just being tribal i mean our tribe and your tribe are different tribes and we don't want to be in involved in your tribe but the other part of it is more uh, intellectually challenging although that's a very disturbing element abroad in western civilization altogether at this point which is we and they instead of i and thou which is uh, was martin buber's point about how to relate to the other to other people, let alone other ideas. Um, I think that it involves a fear of being discredited because whatever their particular thing is, let's say it's uh, cryptozoology. They don't want to get involved in ufology, although clearly the phenomena at least clearly to me, are part of the same spectrum and probably have the same fundamental origin. Um, they're afraid because they think that cryptozoology is res respectable and biological in nature. And... Um, That machine is talking to me again. <laughs> Neither respectable nor biological. Turn off. <laughs> it won't hear me now. It's playing ocean sounds. <laughs> oh, well, you're in Brighton, right? So, <laughs> by the sea, by this. You know, I live in Atlanta, which isn't near any mountains or oceans or even much of a river or forest or swamps or any of those things. So it's a city that probably will come to dominate the entire world. <laughs> Today, DeKalb County, tomorrow, the world. <laughs> what a horrible thought, really. Where were we? On the I never finished on Lemuria because uh, the the point uh, from uh, I borrowed it from Ravenscroft, but uh, uh, apparently the thousand years of Shambhala and Agarthi was rudely interrupted when the Chinese, uh, the uh, People's Liberation Army, uh, liberated uh, those two settlements by machine gunning everyone there to death. Uh, somehow they got in and somehow that happened and that they no longer exist. I don't necessarily believe that, but I certainly think the People's Liberation Army is quite capable of that. Uh, some of the things that they've done in Tibet are beyond despicable, almost like Putin, only worse. Um, listen, in St. Petersburg, if you if you hear me now. You're working for the wrong guys, trust me. I know these things. <laughs> um, so, 
Where were we? Oh, yeah. So that's that's where that particular account of Lemuria goes. That basically it hived. Same story that you get about Atlantis. That there were survivors, and the uh, great civilizations of remote antiquity were the result of these survivors uh, coming up in coastal areas in Egypt and somehow making their way up the Indian subcontinent or, or through, I don't know, what are they calling Bur Burma now? Min Myanmar. Okay. Uh, and winding up in Tibet. And uh, the same would be true for the Mesoamerican civilizations. I think that they, uh, that's undercrediting the people the indigenous people in those areas, but still there are very great similarities in their mythologies and in their building practices, in their calendrical, uh, and in their uh, apparent fixation on the stars. And that would even include uh, Stonehenge, unless of course, while they're digging that tunnel, Stonehenge collapses, which will embarrass a lot of people and probably get the Labour I'm, Party in power, but that's I'm fairly sure totally in the, uh, in the 60s, and uh, I don't think it's it's widely known, but that all of the stones got moved in the 60s and uh, concrete foundations put underneath, and then they were just replaced there, and no one really made a big fuss of it at the time. The Stonehenge, the Stonehenge yeah, monoliths. Yeah, that just, just happened with one of the stone circles in France. It has been moved around. And of course, if there are alignments, whether they're ley lines, whether they're astronomical alignments, whatever, if you move them and are not cognizant of that and don't record the original location, uh, any archaeological uh, possibility of uh, understanding it will uh, be destroyed or at least mutilated. So uh, there should be respect for the uh, more interesting monuments of antiquity and not passing a judgment on what is more interesting based on, you know, the present moment. It's a shame they didn't, uh, didn't think that with the uh, with your stones in Georgia. <laughs> well, they weren't ancient. No. They were, you know, and uh, apparently some fundamentalist Baptist group in the town that's most famous for its uh, gravestones. It's the gravel capital of, of the United States, whatever that, the granite capital. Granite, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my friend, uh, my friend, and he's sometimes co-hosted on this show, Raymond Wiley, used to live in Georgia and he wrote the disinformation book on the Georgia Guidestones. So he's, uh, we've, uh, I've, heard a lot of he used to live here so i've i've heard a lot about the, the guy staying so i'm kind of gutted i didn't get to go and see them but um oh well <laughs> well there are endless pictures of them and but what was left got uh carted away by the local government because not to you know censor it just because uh, they weren't in their original position and they had been i mean whoever these uh fundamentalist fanatics were, uh, they did a very thorough job and seemed to know a lot about explosives, mm. which doesn't surprise me at all. Mm. Uh, it was all um, fired uh, on by, there was a Senate, a woman running for Senate, wasn't there? Um, I've forgotten her name now, but she 
kept referring to them as satanic stones and uh um it was shortly after that that they got blown up but uh yeah i don't remember you're not talking about uh what's her name marjorie taylor green the jewish space laser no. lady she's a congresswoman from northeast georgia that apparently was so far to the right she got kicked out of the right wing caucus <laughs> For getting into fist fights with another one of the no, really, was, really, really crazy people. I think she was running for Senate, this woman. And part of her campaign was that she would remove those satanic stones. It was her, uh, her kind of one of her pledges. But um, well, she did. She didn't rise to. I mean, I know the the politics of. Georgia Senate races because uh, I support both of the people that are now senators and uh, uh, it's a new day here but uh, I don't remember anybody of the female persuasion uh, running for Senate here there are several House of Representative people yeah, maybe I'm getting my I don't are, know my American politics particularly I know someone was running for something <laughs> they were shortly, <laughs> someone was just running <laughs> this is Georgia somebody is running for something all the time yeah. it's you get out Atlanta is a very civilized place you get 20 miles in any direction and you're back in the Confederate States of America <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm from out there. Yeah, trust me. I think that's why Raymond left. <laughs> he lives in where does he live now? Colorado. That's why I grew up here in Atlanta, but uh, I've lived out in the boondocks. And uh, uh, well, that's a whole subject that we don't need to go to <laughs> right now. Um, there was something we were talking about we were, that I we were talking about the got um, away from. we were talking about the uh, relationship that some modern occult orders have publicly, at least, with discussing the more paranormal and, frankly, sort of occult manifestations of our work, rather than simply the the academic scrutiny or the, the talking the talk, the actual sort of walking the walk and the and the the discussion of what exactly what it is that it. are being contacted, etc. Okay, so I was, uh, I did wander off of that. And uh, I think that the major, what do you keep notes on? <laughs> <laughs> this guy is obviously <laughs> he does have, he does a like, reptilian. He does. A reptilian! No! He, there are no reptilians, folks. His, lo his lodge is weirdly black. The lizard brain. <laughs> but he remembers stuff that I've wandered away from like 15, 20 minutes ago. So that's <laughs> that's either a virtue or it's he's taking notes and no writing notes. down no. addresses. <laughs> no notes. No notes. I can't remember. I don't know if you're not left-handed. You could be left-handed. I am left-handed. Left <laughs> Ah, you see, and you held up your How right sinister. hand as if to say, is... I'm not writing this down, and you're all the well, I'm not writing this down. Okay, but I'm so, so sinister. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I don't want anybody to shoot you when you leave or blow up your car or whatever. It's okay, it's Ken's car. Yeah, it's my car anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to blow up your car. You'll never have me back on the show because you'll be 
staring at the ceiling. Ah, the fucking greenfields. <laughs> <laughs> fucking greenfield. Okay, so tell me again. I'm old and my mind wanders. Um, I still have some of my wits about me. Get your wits ready. Uh, it was... Um, <laughs> We were talking about the, the the nature of entities that are contacted. Obviously, we've mentioned like the contactee kind of era and no, and that sort of no, thing. no, but no, in, no. We were talking about but in the sort of occult communities. Yeah, exactly. So to, in the yeah, yeah occult communities and how they resist, sort of discussing the those stranger aspects, even though they're kind of fundamentally what we're engaging with. Well. I think that most occult bodies think that they, I actually, I mean, I've told this story so often, I hesitate to even mention it again, so I give the very briefest form. I'm riding in a car with William Gary Keith Breeze, and he's telling me why I shouldn't write books about flying saucers, because that's not respectable. The occult is respectable. And that, I think I mentioned that on your show, Ken. Yeah, did I not? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just a an important moment for me because I thought, what's wrong with this guy? How much acid did he do in the 60s? What is the deal here? Um, and clearly, each group of people that are involved in one aspect of this or another has a core of people who think what I'm doing is perfectly sane, respectable, and good. And what these other groups are doing, uh, if I associate myself with that, it will drag me down to their level. And uh, there are varying levels of acceptance. I would say UFOs have been far more accepted by and large by the, you know, the general public than the occult. And if you want to talk about academia, uh, clearly, if there's any respectability at all, as if that necessarily matters, uh, the occult is way down the list below UFOs and Loch Ness, you know? I mean, that's just... That's just fundamentally true, and there are you know polls by Gallup and others that uh, that support that position. And I did point that out in uh, uh, Complete Secret Cipher: The Euphonauts uh, somewhere in a in a long footnote that was addressed to maybe three people: Bill and Dave, and you know people in in that universe that seem to think that they would be lowering themselves to have an interest in any of these other areas. And my whole pitch is they're all one area seen from different angles and maybe projected in different ways, like the Lynch Black Lodge, you know, a lot of flash cutting there and talking backwards. And uh, it's meant to be disorienting. And I think that... Uh, I'm not saying that comes from the Black Lodge, but I'm saying that's what the Black Lodge wants. It wants a very divided, for lack of a better term, paranormal community. So on, on just sort of mentioning that and reflecting back again, using my 
amazingly sparky memory for this early in the morning for us. Um, <laughs> it, sort of mentioning the, those kind of big it's motivations. It's 6.15 here. <laughs> it's 11 a.m. here, which is painfully early. Um, the uh, oh, the sort of big machinations. I, of I the... probably would be going to sleep in about an hour or two hours, and I don't get, get up until, you know, the big yellow thing has... Uh, we'll, see if we can, to the we'll see if we can squeeze you for a little bit more information then. And um, uh, right at the beginning, you'd sort of be mentioning about the kind of big machinations of the Black Lodge. And you were sort of suggesting that that they like to create hope only to have it dashed and then, you know, kind of be ah, fueled, yeah. and fueled by the, the, the anger and the disillusionment. And so obviously we've got this whole UFO whistleblower, the um, David Bruch Grouch um, stuff happening, and there's and you were mentioning the disclosure movement. So is this is this an instance that you see the sort of the meddling fingers of the Black Lodge um, setting fragments of society up for hope, only to have it dashed by some lack well, of? Well, uh, yes and no. I, I think that that is. Uh, one source, but I think this is one of those things, and I don't credit very much of the, uh, hardly anything that involves conspiracy. I mean, there are conspiracies in historically, you know, Caesar didn't die of, you know, a broken ankle or something. Um, uh, but most conspiracy theories, I wouldn't be surprised if they're launched by the Black Lodge in order to create you know, confusion and disillusionment and all that. But in this particular case, I think that some of the confusion, would that be the right word, comes directly from uh, government sources. Uh, in 1953, during the Great Red Scare uh, following uh, World War II, and following the uh, major UFO sightings over the White House and Capitol and uh, and Pentagon um, in uh, July of 1952, which is the first time UFOs came to my attention, and I was just a little little bairn, just down there with my father saying, "Flying saucers over Washington." Okay. That stuck with me. So my antenna must have been up from a previous life or something. But anyway, um, somehow the CIA linked that to the notion that Soviet bombers could sneak in because that night the Ground Observer Corps, which was a civilian thing, and uh, radar and those jets that had been launched uh, to try to catch the flying saucers um, uh, really completely smashed the communications network for that night. And it happened over a few nights, if I recall, the um, the the wave of uh, UFOs over the capital. Well, it was July 1952, and it was uh, caused it to be integrated with the uh, anti-communist 
fervor that was going on and the notion that Russian bombers were, you know, just waiting for. And then, of course, uh, that was a paranoid period in American history. And they thought, well, it's possible that the Communist Party USA could infiltrate flying saucer organizations and create uh, false flaps so that the Soviet Union could come in and while flying saucers were being chased and uh, radar was jammed, they could uh, liquidate the entire East Coast of the United States. So the CIA convened a panel in 1953, and all of this is public information now. I mean, you can find it online. Um, it was declassified probably by conspiracy theorists who I don't know, use the Freedom of Information Act, the U.S. Act to get stuff that's declassified uh, or partially declassified, published. So it's up on the Internet. Um, the CIA reached the conclusion that there was indeed a threat from the Reds and that therefore, I mean, this is 50s think, therefore, uh, UFOs should be discounted in any way possible and flying saucer private organizations should be suppressed. And it was shortly after that that a lot of the men in black cases happened. And I believe those those particular cases were not the tulpas that I think most men in black cases are. They were emulating that, but they were basically CIA agents trying to scare the bejesus out of uh, proto-ufologists. You can't really call them ufologists during that period. And their major coup, and I cannot prove this one, but uh, when the first really large, coherent flying saucer organization in America was formed, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, uh, then located in, uh, well, at 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C. I remember because I got kicked out of that office uh, once. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I've been kicked out of all kinds of organizations. I'm <laughs> you can't fire me, I quit, is something I have said many times. <laughs> <laughs> you must have a very calloused backside. <laughs> but uh, uh, the interesting thing is NICAP was founded by a civilian who I've never heard anything bad about named Townsend Brown. But shortly thereafter was replaced by Major Donnelly Kehoe, a uh, person of, uh, well, a graduate of the uh, Naval Academy at Annapolis and who had many friends in far higher places than a major should have and who had written an absolutely uh, paranoid but turned out to be somewhat truthful book uh, before World War II, uh, before America entered World War II. Uh, I think it was 1940 called uh, uh, M something, uh, what's your government plans for you? And it was basically, you know, we'll round up the communists and the fascists and blah, 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 which 
sort of actually happened, uh, although they didn't round up all the communists because by then uh, Hitler had attacked Stalin and uh, suddenly the U.S. Communist Party was calling for America to enter the war. It's, and this was Kehoe. Before, this was written by Kehoe, was it? Yes, it was. Um, I think it's called M-Day, What's Your Government Plans for You, or something very close to that. It's uh, trite. It was written around 1940. And Kehoe in those days was a pulp uh, magazine writer and all that that implies. Um, so he becomes the director of NICAP in the same year that it was founded. And... The governing board of directors was headed by one of his classmates from the Naval Academy. That was Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter, the first head of the CIA. So, and NICAP's focus was on disclosure, not on landings or close encounters of the third, fourth, and fifth kind, but on disclosure. They almost had a rule, which I critique them for the term of their existence that uh, it appears that flying saucers can fly over and be recorded and we can fill out our questionnaires, but they can't land and any reports of landings are uh, fictitious or hoaxes and any reports of anything more than that are even more fictitious and more more hoax-like. And don't talk to Richard Shaver. That's actually what their office person said to me, uh, not on the occasion of kicking me out of the office. That came later. Um, but, uh, uh, and I knew Shaver and I thought, well, this is really interesting stuff. I'm not sure how much of this is literally true, but this is what you ought to pay attention to. Anyway, NICAP focused on disclosure, which is going to happen anytime. Now, there are not a lot of people left from that period. Really, the only ones that, that are still around in ufology are people that were part of what was then called the teen ufology movement, of which I was one, and uh, Gene Steinberg and Rick Hilberg and Dave Halpern uh, were all uh, involved in and are still involved in ufology in various ways. But the people who were the generation before us including Ray Palmer and Shaver and uh, Jim Mosley and Gray Barker. And uh, uh, they tended to look askance at NICAP and NICAP tended to look askance at them. And then when Project Blue Book, the Air Force, much vaunted Air Force project on flying saucers, uh, closed down, um, They were, there was talk that they were going to destroy the Blue Book files. So I went to my then senator who happened to be the head of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And I said, look, this, I, I don't know what you think about this stuff, uh, but clearly it needs to be preserved for historical archival purposes. And I would like to take a look at it. And he said, well, um, I will set you up with security clearance and you can go over it. All the files have been sent from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which was in Dayton, Ohio, to, uh, 
I want to call it Space Camp, same location, uh, the Redstone Arsenal in Alabama, which is not very far from me. So I got to look at the Blue Book files. They didn't know. The thing I always say is, if you want to know something about flying saucers, ask a private ufologist. Don't ask the government, because the government program consisted of intake of reports by a middle echelon officer, one enlisted Air Force person, and a secretary. That's it. That's the whole history of Project Blue Book. Didn't Heineck Heineck think that there were the juicier reports were being siphoned off direct to the military and not ending up in Blue Book anyway. Heineck was on the 1953 CIA panel that determined that private UFO organizations should be disrupted and UFOs should be poo-pooed. And that's what he did up until he got the feedback, uh, he got laughed at essentially. And he was a private scientist. I mean, he was uh, with Northwestern University. He was, you know, lead astronomer there, blah, 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 you know, respectable private scientists under contract to the Air Force to be their house naysayer. And uh, I talked to him uh Actually, I talked to him from Jacques Vallée's room in Chicago when he was living in Chicago um, before before he got fired because he changed. I don't know if he changed his mind or cha- or his ego was bruised by being called Dr. Swamp Gas or whatever, but he changed sides and immediately got fired by the Air Force, which really shows where the Air Force was coming from. And the Air Force turned the whole matter over to uh, Dr. Condon at the University of Colorado. And like right now with the, the current disclosure movement made of younger and equally naive people, they thought that Condon was, you know, a fair, fair and balanced person who would look at these things and had a considerable budget. And of course, Condon from the very, very beginning said privately later disclosed the only disclosure was he said the trick will be to seem to be objective about this but actually to you know to reach the conclusion that these things don't exist and that they're just misidentifications but i'm not supposed to reach that conclusion yet or something is that the uh wasn't that a little like giveaway in one of those statements he he, uh admits the admits the conclusion before the study's even begun Oh, that, that, yeah, uh, that that was, uh, I don't know how that got disclosed, but it did get disclosed. And that's the only disclosure that, that has any relevance to today, because the fact is, I think the repeated cycle is build up those interested in flying saucers and then reach the conclusion, which is foreordained by the powers that be, there's really nothing to it. And then the big letdown, which presumably a substantial share of those people who are interested in the subject will wander away from, which was true then and probably will be true with the disclosure people now. So I I don't argue with them. I don't debate them because I, I was around for Blue Book and Condon and what happened then. And I see exactly the same pattern now, but these are newer people, 
unlike some of the newer people like the the Newkirks who are taking a fresh look at all of this, uh, all of the paranormal range of things from UFOs to Bigfoot uh, to goblins in Kentucky, of which there are uh, many, lots of them. Not goblins that I know, but goblins that I don't know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's over the most massive cave system in the United States. And I'm not sure it may be the most massive system in the world, which runs under West Virginia and under Kentucky. So uh, that was where they sort of started. And they have an entirely different thing. I think they're the hope for the future of paranormal investigation. I don't even call myself a ufologist anymore. I call myself a para-ufologist and have since the 1970s, because clearly this is a broader thing. And the fact that I have a, a hand in uh, magic and occultism and a hand in ufology and a more than casual interest in near-death experiences, uh, uh, reincarnation cases, not hypnotic cases, I discount them, but uh, uh, childhood memories like the research being done at the University of Virginia, um, um, first under Ian Stevenson and now uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Tucker has sort of taken the reins of that. Yeah. I think it's I, a, that's, um, that's a whole that's a whole nother discussion for us, I think, at some <laughs> point, but it is a fascinating one, that whole thing about the childhood memories. My word, there's strange consistency in a lot of those stories. But anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, to some extent, the, the preponderance of stories come from societies that are permissive of the notion of reincarnation. And some think that that's a, a, a blow against these being legitimate cases. But I think a, a term coined by John Keel, uh, silent contactees, I think in societies like uh, in Europe and in America, North America, anyway, um, where reincarnation beliefs are, if anything, discouraged as either screwy or against the principles of the great Western religions as they slowly uh, set in the West. There's a double entendre there if you look for it really, really <laughs> hard. Um, and uh, there are silent childhood reincarnation cases because what does the average family in uh, Manchester or uh, Chicago or Prague uh Do they go to the press when their kid starts talking about their previous life? A few do, but the vast majority, it goes against the grain. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of ridicule and they remain silent reincarnation cases. And I suspect that the, uh, the percentages are just as high in Western societies as they are in Thailand and Myanmar and India and Pakistan. And, well, I guess not in Pakistan because you get killed. Um, uh, well, in Lebanon and Turkey, uh, th there are 
groups, uh, the Druze, for example, have reincarnation cases. They have an unusual take on it. And then there is another group that is Islamic in Turkey, but Turkey, as these things go, has a more slightly more tolerant attitude towards uh, diversity. Uh, and this group uh, uh, has a lot of reincarnation cases that were um, examined by uh, uh, the the people from the University of Virginia and their local associates. So the, the number of cases is in the thousands. And I would say it's a very convincing thing because, you know, some of them could be hoaxes and some of them could be tutored kids. But the, uh, the people at the University of Virginia are uh, professional scientists, have no real axe to grind and are very, very methodical. If you read their books, they're overpriced, but important books. Uh, it, it's very hard to explain these cases in any other terms except maybe possession, which is just, you know, a different side of the same uh, can of uh, verma, vermin, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that as, as a subject, uh, a subject on, a, on another, another show, I think. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time again, Alan. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's always good to yeah. have you on. And although we were going to talk about sex magic today, I think we'll have to do another show with you soon about that because that is a topic. Well, I I sent you a bunch of documents that relate to that, not from the book, so you don't get to talk <laughs> about it without me being there to sell the damn book because I've been working on it for a year and a half. Okay, <laughs> excellent. And, the angry people on Twitter are getting up committees and torches <laughs> and things. And if that book doesn't come out soon, I won't be responsible for what happens to my publisher or me. <laughs> but when is it? It's, so it's coming out on the 31st, did you say? That's that's what they say. Okay. Well, that's good. And I'll believe it when I see it. But the thing is, I haven't even seen a proof copy yet. Uh -huh. And I insisted on, you know, at least being able to – proof after the professional proofreader uh, to just everything has uh, the decline of Western Civ chapter four, five, six, seven, and eight includes the fact that everything has uh, typos in it now. But I, I'm old and insistent and try to minimize that. And if I don't get a look at it, there will certainly be a table of Quarantines or something that will be totally embarrassing. <laughs> Back in my youth, I put out, a, I had an obituary. I don't remember who it was for, but I was trying to say flesh and blood and I didn't proofread it properly. And it said, we're all real flesh and bloop. <laughs> and I'll leave you with that thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I that could be the, the, the episode title, couldn't it? Flesh and Blue. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Excellent. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Alan. Cheers.
and we are back. That was a uh, fantastic. <laughs> if uh, it's always a cosmic experience talking to Alan, which yeah, I yeah, we've <laughs> we've done some globe trotting there, haven't we? Been yeah. all over the place. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a uh, uh, what's the name? Um, a well-travelled man, intellectually speaking, at least, and I imagine you know physically speaking as well. Absolutely, and and just a guy with endless anecdotes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now I found it's particularly interesting. As I said in the intro, the stuff about the Black Lodge is something that's, I, I guess, my fascination with it was was uh, reared when I watched Twin Peaks, probably back in the day, and so that that sort of name is always stuck in my head. But when you actually find out the things like the Dugpas and the Black Lodge are actually from real occult, <laughs> yeah, sources. I thought, I thought one of the interesting things was uh, his sort of describing the sort of the machinations of the Black Lodge beyond the occult world into the other sort of paranormal worlds and actually across the sort of whole human spectrum. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And his own encounter with a, a, a Black Lodge agent was uh, particularly interesting. We got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had, to, had, to, had to steer him steer him around a bit. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, so his book is coming out on the 31st of this very month. So 31st of July, 2023. Um, for Looking forward to that and yeah. uh, and getting to read a bit more of the Fraternitas Saturni material that he unfortunately refused to divulge to yeah, us. Yeah, he dodged that one. He dodged that one. And that's annoying because I'm particularly interested. Like the reason I have the book in front of me in this interview, if you're watching the video, you'll see me hold it up a couple of times is because I'm particularly interested in the Fraternitas Saturni, a.k.a. the Brotherhood of Saturn. Um but anyway, uh, we'll be back next week um, with another episode and then potentially another episode of something else, but I'm not going to go into that yet. Well, thanks very much for having me on today, Ken, yeah, and uh, but, we'll speak soon. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you guys next week. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe if you're uh, on YouTube, which you won't be because this is the audio recording, but if you do happen to go across to YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, and why not follow us on Instagram? And uh, we're at Sitting Now Everywhere, except TikTok, annoyingly, which is at Sitting Now Official. But yeah, we're posting clips and what books we're reading and all sorts of things up there. So come and uh, come and say hello. We like talking to our listeners. Exciting. Yeah. Anyway, see you next time. Bye.